0: Dear listener, this is Interfaith Ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, have you ever had a conversation and realized coming out of it that you were changed? That's how I feel about this interview. This week, my guests are Jennifer Brandel and Mara Zapeda, two former journalists and current tech entrepreneurs. Together, Jen and Mara are co-founders of Harken, a startup that helps organizations listen more deeply to their audiences. And don't we need more listening these days? Well, I was lucky enough to have a chance to listen to these two fab ladies as they shared about what's shaped them spiritually, the system-altering vision behind their mighty endeavours, and why we need more zebras and less unicorns. What does that mean? You'll just have to have a listen. Well, Mara, you know, yesterday when Jen and I were making arrangements for the conversation, she was giving me a play-by-play of walking her dog and how the, uh, the dog's poop was going. So I don't know if you've got any <laughs> pet bowel movements that you want to check in about as we do our sound test here.
1: <laughs> no, yeah, I've been taking care of calves for the last few days because my family has been on a backpacking trip. And then my sister Oh, that's a
0: whole other level of excrement to deal with then.
1: It is, yeah. They, <laughs> it's amazing. The, this, it's a lot. And then my sister-in-law uh-huh. will take the cow patties and create a bovine poop tea that she then sprays on the marijuana Wait. plant. Um, there, that,
0: that there's a lot going on in that sentence.
1: <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the patty becomes like a tea bag, and then you swish okay. it around, and then you and so the water seeps. It's a it's a it's kind of a tea, and then you stick it in a spray bottle. <laughs> and then you use the sh- tea and you spray your tomatoes, or in this case, they're growing a marijuana plant that my niece has named Obi Wan Kenobi, and so yep.
0: <laughs> makes sense. My it's on brand.
1: sister-in-law will say to Maeve, "Take the sh- tea and spray Obi Wan Kenobi," <laughs> and it's uh...
0: <laughs> <laughs> again another sentence that uh, I was not expecting to hear this morning. <laughs>
1: And that's oh, like it's really living. That's well, my story. I, wow. That
0: is I think the most literal the ish part of interfaith ish has ever gotten. So thank you for that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh Jen and I will get literal in these lessons. Like, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. A yeah. lot of a lot of experiences like that.
0: <laughs> Let's switch to another personal topic. Let's talk about religion and belief and stuff. Um so, Jen, you and I met about uh, 10 or 11 years ago, or something like that, when we were both on, on a media assignment for the U.S. Baha'i Communities Communications Office. Yes. Um, and you came out from Chicago to D.C. for this story we were doing, and I remember pretty immediately, Finding out um, when we when I got into the car with you and we started talking that you're actually not a card-carrying Baha'i. And so <laughs> Are there
2: cards? I didn't know about the cards.
0: <laughs> <You> <laughs> no, I literally have a Baha'i card. You didn't know that. That's that's part of the deal.
2: Wow. Okay. Sorry. Um, go on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but um, so my you know my question was was then, and I'll ask I'll ask it to you now because I'm 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 curious if you can share that story. Um, how did you end up? working at this uh, Baha'i media outfit.
2: Yeah, it actually, the seeds for it were planted when I was probably 10 or 11 years old. And I grew up outside Chicago in a suburb. And I remember one, I think it was a weekend, my dad uh, took me to a Northwestern football game I'm guessing because the weather was bad and he only asks me to go to the sports games (laughs) if my brothers don't want to go. So that's, that's my assumption is a bad weather. He was like, do you want to go? I said, sure. So on our way over there, he drove by this incredible structure that I later learned was the Baha'i temple in Wilmette. And it's very close Mm -hmm. to Northwestern, um, the university, you know, just like less Mm -hmm. than a mile away. And I remember looking out the window and just thinking, what is this magnificent non-Midwestern structure doing in the Midwest? <laughs> Clashes um, with the landscape. It was an extreme clash of the landscape. I was used to strip malls and subdivisions, and this is uh, an incredible building built out of, uh, you know, inner concrete work that is, it just looks nothing like uh, anything I'd seen before. And so I, you know, begged my dad to pull over. Can we go inside? Can we look around? And so we did. And um, in addition to being inside the magnificent um, prayer space, we went down to the bookshop. And I was just so interested in, like, how did this thing get here? Who are these people? What's going hmm. on? <laughs> that um, I bought some kind of a, like, introductory book to the Baha'i faith. And when I read it, I read about this concept of progressive revelation, um, and I, I grew up in a family that was a mixed religion, which, you know, in, these days is like not a big deal, but it still was kind of weird, I guess, at, at the time mm. Um, mm. where I grew up in a very Christian forward <laughs> community outside of Chicago. And I was one of oh, very okay. few um, non-Christian based kids. Like my dad was from an Irish Polish Catholic family. My mom was from uh-huh. a Jewish family.
0: Uh-huh. And so um, and practicing, your mom?
2: and not totally. I would say we uh-huh. were we were holiday <laughs> religious. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I knew every holiday by the kind of food that we served, not really what the it's meaning a, was yeah, it. Yeah, that's a
0: common common story. Uh huh.
2: Yeah, I was like, is this a holiday where it's apples all brown and food? And, yeah, and do we have apples and honey? Whatever. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do we chant, "Let my people go"? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um And it's funny. Like my mom used to uh, just for to prove a point would um, call and complain at the school if we had tests or sport games on Jewish holidays. But then yeah, on yeah, those that's, holidays- That's also part of it, yep. That, yeah, you have to do that. It's, it's uh, <laughs> part of the religion. But then she would like take us to the movies or apple picking and we wouldn't like go to temple that day. <laughs> so it was just kind of like the, they need to respect this religion. And also like, what double feature could we see? <laughs> so, um, so long story short, when I got to the um, temple, and I read I read about progressive revelation and, and this idea that, um, you know, there are all these spiritual teachers that are all part of one great humanity and, like, they are not in, in conflict with another. It was really freeing because I remember thinking, um, you know, if my dad's right and Catholicism or Christianity is the way to go, then my mom is wrong and that's mm. really uncomfortable or vice versa. Mm. So um, this was a way of just being, like, taking one level of altitude up and not feeling that conflict anymore about mm. like, should I choose a religion or not? Um, fast forward then, <laughs> um, you know, at that moment in time, I was like, I think I'm a Baha'i. And that's about all I thought uh, after that. Uh-huh. I didn't um, pursue... Because you didn't
0: actually know any other other Baha'is in your community? Or, zero.
2: Or? I think uh-huh. I would be very surprised if there were any in my little hamlet of an exurb uh-huh. outside Chicago, but maybe, uh-huh. um, but then, you know, I went to college, pursued all sorts of different um, studies and whatnot. And When I came back to Chicago, um, I actually ended up making friends with a bunch of folks who are various religions, but a lot of Baha'is and learned about um, hmm. their approach to democracy and, and elections and all these things. And at the time I was a reporter uh, freelance for WBEZ, a public radio station, and just found the electoral process so interesting and so different from mm. what my experience of it was and what the kind of cultural experience was it in the US that I did a story on it. And then lo and behold, uh, the Baha'i media services folks contacted me and said, hey, that was so clear and useful how you explained things. Would you be interested <laughs> in doing more work for us? And I'm embarrassed to say, but at the time I remember telling my husband or you know, boyfriend at the time, but I was like, I think I'd need to get a lobotomy before I decided to work for a religion, Um, but (laughs) (laughs) there, there was something. It is a
0: weird request, right, that your subject calls you up and says, hey that was great you want to join the team exactly
2: well and i knew some of the folks who worked for media services and they were uh Mm. people in my friend circle and i thought they were wonderful um Mm -hmm. and the other thing was that like i was you know struggling 20 something living on nothing um you know freelancing my way to not a career so i ended up taking the job and through the process uh met you and so many other wonderful people but that's a long story to start with but um, let's just say it, it dealt with football lobotomies, and, um, and apple picking. Those, those are the Amazing. main themes you should take away.
0: Yeah, I, I was just picturing that, I don't know if you've, you've ever seen this, but there's, there's a scene in Risky Business that <laughs> is, is almost exactly what you described with your dad. Have you ever seen that?
2: <laughs> I'm trying to remember, I have a terrible there's, memory, I but think, please, I, think it's,
0: yeah. I think it's Risky Business. It, there's some Tom Cruise movie, it's the one with the slide in it. I think that's, yeah, yeah. that's Risky Business. And he um, just randomly drives past the house of worship at at night, like just oh. just is is cruising around um, in in, uh, in nor- I guess northern Chicago area, and they just for whatever reason decided to set up one shot where. He just stops at the light in front of it and then just keeps going but it has nothing to do with the story and they don't <laughs> a- they don't acknowledge what this alien looking structure is <laughs> that he happens to be driving by i don't think it advances the plot at all nobody comments on it so you, oh, uh, you I'm going to have to step revisit one, that. Once yeah, yeah, we
2: got out of the car there. There were no cocktails or sliding to be done. So.
0: <laughs> it would be fun if you, that was your entrance to the visitor center. It, right, no, as a ten-year-old. <laughs> sans pants and just a dress shirt.
2: <laughs> you know, they're so accepting, they probably would have been like, welcome. Um, we take all kinds. Exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mara, how about, how about for you? Um, what was your religious upbringing like? And mm-hmm. uh, what what shaped your outlook on spirituality?
1: Well, I was um, born in Vancouver, Canada. I was born at home and my parents uh, are artists. So my father is a painter and my mother is a cellist. And I mm-hmm. was born into, at the time, they were part of a Sufi community on Vancouver Island.
2: Oh, uh, wow.
1: And it's, um, it's kind of an overstatement to call it a Sufi community as I'm starting to learn in my adulthood. What is called things and what the actual faith, um, an expression of <laughs> Sufism, is, is kind of a gulf apart, you know, like the uh, the Western expression of these ideas versus what they are in their true form.
0: Are you saying they were just a bunch of young white kids that were hanging around reading Coleman Barks? Is that is that basically no. the extent of Sufism?
1: No. Yeah. I mean, I have. Um, gosh, that's a. Yeah. It's. Let's see. It was like they got together and there was this character at the time, a couple characters at the time, Rashad Field and E.J. Gould were the, um, and then Marat Yagan were these, um, I I don't know if they would call themselves guru figures, but they were creating Mm. community in Vancouver Island. And I have to say it was a very earnest expression of Mm -hmm. what what a lot of uh, Sufi ideas and ideas as um, they are expressed in Gurdjieff. It was this study community and this action community, and EJ specifically was kind of this really out there guy who would take these ideas of the work and what it meant to work in community, and they would say things like, you're going to open a bookstore in 48 hours. And so this group of people would have to get together and figure out how to work together to open a bookstore. Um, they did that with a you mean rep- as, a,
0: as an assignment or as a as a prediction of, of where their life is going?
1: As an assignment of what could be possible in working with community, in community. Mm, So, so much of these ideas around the work are about, you know, how can you bring this energy together, work through conflict, work through your own ego. And one of the best compression systems to do that is to start to work in community with other people because all the comes out. Mm. And so if you, you know, kind of have this assignment and you are... Channeling your collective energy to get something done. What is possible in that space, and what comes out of you that you then that causes you to then self reflect, that causes you to self remember. So I have to say it was an it was a a more esoteric community, and it was definitely not focused on reading Rumi. Um, They were in sort of this dialogical conversation with these figures really trying to bring up their own stuff and you know with Mm. that comes a lot of extraordinary negligence of their children and daily life and all of this um i don't know sort of collateral damage of the abandonment of everyday life has been well documented in all sorts of psychology theses Mm. But in the moment, I can empathize with and understand how enlivening it must have felt to have been in that space between, you know, like the 70s and the 80s after the high of the 60s. And as we're entering this era of, you know, Reagan and Carter, and you're going through this space to try to figure out how do you actually concretize, embody, and live through some of these ideas without being on drugs and without being in these um, completely altered states. So yeah. it was it was a very earnest, intellectual, thoughtful group of people out there in the wilds of Canada. Um, and that was what I was born into. And, and I think um, in my early childhood, it was very much defined by having artists constantly in and out of the house just the sense of almost not even knowing who my parents were. They were very involved with um, indigenous communities Mm -hmm. and this group of people and the children were sort of passed from one to the other. And my father is Mm -hmm. from Honduras. He's from Latin America. And there's this Mm -hmm. photo album of my first trip um, to Guatemala and Latin America. And I am kind of a white presenting person. And it's just Mm -hmm. this shock white baby that's being held by the indigenous communities there and, there's just this whole album of me looking like I have this look on my face face. That's just totally mystified. <laughs> like, it's not like this, um, you know, transcendent experience of this Madonna and child where you imagine this kind of beaming baby, every single mm-hmm. photo, my brows furrowed. And I'm like, yeah. what the hell but is Someone please
0: photo? tell me which one of these people is my parents.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, wow. Yeah. So just, it was like, I was the child that, um was not i every it just it, i just have so many successive memories of being so confused about what was going on <laughs> yeah and then and, i was yeah
0: and did you identify as a sufi as as a as a child or a youth did you no i wanted to get as far self?
1: away for, as possible from all of that uh-huh. so uh-huh. um i went to the mall like i loved hanging out at the mall with my friends uh huh <laughs> and i loved like going to claire's jewelry and i loved um you know shopping and then at Mm -hmm. a certain point i started to discover poetry i think when i was 13 i I was always a writer i've always kept a journal but around Mm -hmm. 13 or 14 i was giving i was given um rilke's letters to a young poet and then i started Mm -hmm. to read audrey and rich and sylvia plath and anias nin and um uh, Audrey Lorde and, and those, that really opened my mind. And that was sort of mm. the portal where I was able to, it, you know, it was hard because in my upbringing, I was saturated with every potential spiritual expression of faith. You know, there were, derv- my mm. mother was a studied to be a dervish. There were ceremonies mm. that were taking place in, in the house. I mean, we would go to, um, the reservation for ceremonies there we were everywhere we went it, we were we were welcomed into the homes of people of faith and all yeah. of it was so unrelatable to me because it was so connected with my parents that i had to kind of carve myself a path forward that was um individuated from from them and that was really hard because they were so neck deep in in so much really rich tradition
0: yeah well i think it's it's interesting that idea that you said that seemed to be the real motivating force behind all of that conversation and and expression and ways that people were, were trying to commune together that you know pivoting around this question of how to bring folks energy together to work in community because I I look at the the work that um, b- the both of you t- do and you know you're both of you are serial entrepreneurs. Uh, your bios are a long list of these innovative projects that you've started and grown and probably some that you've moved on from. But, but they they all seem to be about building connection and building community that these aren't transactional services or businesses that you're you're creating and as various startups or projects or whatever, it seems like really a deep heart to heart. It's really spiritual work on on some level. So I'm I'm curious, Jen, if you, if you take Harkin, for example, can you talk to us about some of the principles that you're striving to put into action there?
2: Yeah, so I ended up working for the Baha'i Faith, uh, working for their media department, and getting to travel all over the country and learn about how Baha'i community works and what people were doing, and it was, it was really incredible. Um, I knew at the time it was special, and looking back at it now, I'm like, what an amazing opportunity getting to meet people hear about how they're approaching community building understand that all this progress is so incremental and it takes so long but it's so deep when you do um succeed Mm. in creating uh creating that kind of vibration with folks and uh you know working on a deeper level than just being neighbors but actually making change And so when I worked for the Baha'i Faith, you know, I was obviously having to read a lot about it to make sure I I understood the context and, you know, what what were the themes and the lessons we wanted to bring forward in the videos and articles and stuff we were writing. And a few of the principles that really ended up um, rocking my world were one, um, this humble posture of learning. So I remember being very unattracted to religion um, in part because of proselytization and this idea that some people believe they know what's right and that it's their job to convince you uh, to listen to them and and join their cause. And to me, that was always very unattractive and very, uh, it just was off-putting. And so this idea that Baha'is did not proselytize and they were not there to go into communities and say, we know what you need to do. So, you know, watch us and and then follow us was was a huge learning. And they came into communities and just said, you know, your problems best. What do you need and how can I help? How can I be of service? And that is really the opposite of how journalism and newsrooms run. (laughs) So newsrooms typically, um, you know, take the posture of we know what you need to know and you should listen to us instead of saying, what do you not know or understand that we can find out for you? which is Mm. a a more of a service posture. And so that was something I just started thinking a lot about. Like, what if journalism didn't start with the assumption that editors and reporters knew what was best for the public and what information to produce, but instead just asked the public and treated them (laughs) as adults and not as children. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was one thing. And another big one was accompaniment. This idea that for people to grow and to experience new things, you don't have to teach them in a very didactic way. You just have to um, walk by their side, essentially, and be there with them. And they don't have to become an expert in a thing. It's about that experience and that learning that they get to do by leading. And so with the, new, with the journalism that I started to practice and, and work with, it really um, took that idea of accompaniment where the person who is asking the question um, to the newsroom to say, hey, I want to understand better, um, you know, any number of things, like how do statues get made in the city? Who decides who gets memorialized? You know, mm. that person not only gets to get the answer, but they get to go with the reporter and do some interviews and, right. and ask questions of the experts and be part of the story. So that was another major kind of um, influence that I took from the faith and started to apply to journalism.
0: And for people who aren't familiar with Harkin it, you know, your description of it, it sounds like, well, that sounds like a a neat, you know, um, uh, one off idea to do. Like, wouldn't that be kind of cute if we, if we took a community member and and had them tag along with the reporter and play reporter for the day. But, but really what you're talking about is a total paradigm shift for how journalism is approached and, and how media organizations, um, particularly local ones, are are gathering information and, and telling stories and and meeting the needs of the community, right?
2: Exactly, it really is, and that's what we found in, in Mata's work too, that you know, we kind of started thinking, um, we just teach a process and we have a technology to support it, but so much of the work is about looking at the world differently and not looking at the public as consumers or the quote unquote audience and, in this kind of abstracted form. But in looking at them as partners and as agents, mm. that your job is to be of service to directly, and not mm. um, through your own ideas, but through listening to what they need. So mm. it it is a huge paradigm shift, and it means that the work we're doing isn't so much um, just selling a little widget, but it's it's change management and behavioral shifts, and um, you know just kind of nudging, <laughs> nudging forward. Um, you know what position and what jobs do each person play in the process. You know, what's the mm. job of the editor? What's the job of the reporter? What's the job of the public? And um, you know, ultimately how do those fit into the work of democracy?
0: Mara, what about for you, what have been some of the the spiritual lessons or the or the the gui- you know, guideposts that you've used as you've been growing? your projects.
1: Yeah, very similar to Jen. I was working as a reporter. I was focusing mostly on economic reporting. This was right around the financial crisis of 08, 09, and started to see, but then became very involved with my alma mater, Reed College, which is a liberal arts school in Portland, Oregon. And I was on the alumni board, so I was on this leadership role and one night I went to my old dorm room. I connected with this uh, then-freshman at the time who was living in my old dorm room, which was so uncanny to be in this place almost 10 years later. And she was Mm. looking for an internship, and I helped her to get one through my network. And very similar to Jen, we were having these parallel revelations that it was so much not only easier but more life-affirming to not come from a place of assumption or... Uh, pre-design, but instead just act as this open container, let the request come through and then figure out how you could be an instrument for serving that need. And the product of the outcome was almost um, immaterial. It, It was much more like the energetic process that was happening and the healing that was happening through that listening and through that connection and relationship and then the relationship is what would then go on to heal and, quote unquote, add value to these behemoth institutions that had come become so big, whether higher education or journalism or whatever system you're mm-hmm. doing this process in. It was this kind of alchemical transformation where the institution was making a gesture of, and a posture of um, humility, to Jen's point, and then through that humility was taking in the prayer of another person. And then that prayer was the launching off point to a co-creation. And so the spiritual ideas, I think, you know, when I I recently discovered Carl Jung's The Red Book, I started studying that about three years ago. And that has been probably the most singular influential spiritual text in my life because Mm. he emphasizes The the path is completely individual. It's completely individual, and institutions and these big systems they have to try to fit the individual into something comprehensible. And so they just start to minimize and minimize and categorize. There are certainly patterns and archetypes of behavior and need that are changing throughout one's life cycle. You know, if you've just graduated from college, you're in a place of probably uncertainty and student loan debt, and then you evolve um throughout your life into maybe a place of more certainty and ability to give and that's like an archetypal process that you're evolving through but to try to say okay we're going to have this office of career services that meets this wildly expansive spectrum of need of a single individual is is just to my mind it was incomprehensible and i think jen was responding to a very similar dynamic Mm -hmm. in journalism that i Mm -hmm. saw in journalism as well which was well it, it would require letting go of so much control in order to mm. assume a posture of meeting individual need that wouldn't possibly scale. We couldn't possibly do it. It was beyond the imagination to imagine acting as a um, really serving those needs on in that individual way. And so understandably, institutions started to, you know, create these bureaucracies and these hierarchies and to calcify and to entrench and to tighten and to exclude because it was coming from this place of fear of actually letting go of some of this power. And, and um, you know, Jen talks a lot about generating new power, and that was just beyond the imagination of these almost faceless institutions.
0: So, when you're talking about educational institutions and this, and this example of career services or, or the relationship between students and alumni, can you also give an illustration of, of what that looks like, sort of what the typical model is? and 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 what, what it is that Switchboard is able to, to help people achieve.
1: Yeah, I mean, the platform itself is a very simple ask and offer platform. So you can ask for what you need, whether that's, you know, the common patterns we saw were jobs, internships, advice, housing, hospitality. And then if you're in a position, you can offer what you have. So the Lewis Hyde's The Gift was also a really central spiritual text in my life. And this notion of the gift always moving that communities are um, working well for the people they intend to serve when you have this current and this circulation. And so the software itself is very similar to Harkin's. It, you know, it creates this the safe container where institutions at- adopt a posture of, well, tell me what you need or tell me what you have and we can go from there. But as Jen mm-hmm. and I both learned um, and our, you know, our companies have since merged what was needed and what we didn't anticipate. And I think what we took for granted early on was that posture, that process, that skill set was an entire layer of almost um, spiritual or psychological development on the part of the institution and the, the staff members. And just philosophically, to your point a paradigm shift, they didn't have the tools and they didn't have someone walking alongside with them to arrive at that place. And so we built a services layer on top of it. In other words, we have you know humans holding their hands, walking alongside them, reacting mm. to where, they're, where they are. And so it's this combination of software and services. And um, that, that approach is very unique because in the software world, people will tell you, well, services don't scale. You know, you can't possibly have humans walk alongside at a certain point. You need to automate it with chat bots and AI. (laughs) And we have to figure out a way to eradicate the humanity so that we can achieve this technological efficiency. Um, And similarly, you and so it was, you know, it's like this marriage of both. And that I think is was what makes the company really unique and holding on to that as a as a core value and communicating just how necessary um, both Technology and training, software and services—that marriage of the two is so critical. And everything in the startup world, everything in the venture capital world, is trying to optimize for eradicating that human aspect of relational mm-hmm. trust. And yeah. and one
0: one of the things that I, I I see as when I have read some of your your um, articles or interviews that you've done, you know, you've talked about this intention of growing slowly, you know, this, int- this very intentional path of, of learning and, uh, and, and, again, sort of meeting the needs, you know, as they, as, as they are, are brought to your attention, what have you, um, which feels very counter to the stereotype that we have about startups, which is blow up as fast as you can become the biggest, most profitable thing, you know, potentially cash out or sell out, you know, at the highest possible point. And move on to the next thing. But again, that relationship—it's—it seemed that that handholding, that accompaniment, seems like it's a—it's really a long-term relationship.
2: You know, Jack talking about that—that that difference between um, scale quickly or grow slowly—is something that inspired both Mata and I to find each other again. We—we met—I um, forget how long ago, ten or so years ago, through a mutual friend who's a photographer. Mm. And uh, we then, you know, kept up with each other's uh, work. And Mata was always a year or two ahead of me in terms of where she was at. Think, you know, what she was thinking, how- starting a company, building technology, getting investors, all of this stuff. And we reconnected again at this conference in San Francisco. Uh, that was all about social capital. So it was all about like impact investing. And we thought, oh, perfect. This, these are people who are gonna understand <laughs> uh, the work that we're doing yeah. and um, have the They're kind just of money. they gonna give you
0: all the money and you're gonna be able to sleep at night.
2: Uh, yeah, that was um, a very naive assumption we both had that was <laughs> quickly trampled after two sessions there. Um, but we we met up there and we're just kind of you know, joking about Uh, how startup land really replicates like, you know, male patterns uh, of the body. So, um, you know, in terms of like seed capital and growth and up and to the right and exiting. So so we ended up just (laughs) deciding, (laughs) I know visual here. (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, we we wrote this article just to kind of, um, you know, because we're both journalists by trade and we like to write to kind of process. Um, We wrote this article called Sex and Startups, um, Mm. the first line of which startups like the Male Anatomy are designed for liquidity events. Um, (laughs) And so um, we just started really looking at the patterns that were showing up in, you know, everything from the governance structure to the term sheets to the the goal, Mm. you know, is to kind of like, uh, fertilize and exit, (laughs) you know, make, Mm, mm -hmm. make something and then move on to the next thing. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was very different from the way that we were approaching things on a systems change level and on a, you know, many things having to change at once and it taking time. And so this piece that we wrote ended up going viral and we found a ton of other entrepreneurs who were also finding that the startup, I guess, you know, the stereotypes of a startup were were really in conflict with their values. And mm. they also meant that the solutions that they had figured out that actually had product market fit and had people paying for them and were really useful um, were not able to exist in that world because there wasn't the kind of financing for them. So mm-hmm. this is um, another co-creation project, Mata, myself, uh, two other founders, Astrid Schultz and Ania Williams, um, and then thousands of entrepreneurs around the world have also been on this path of trying to figure out what is a values-based startup look like and how do we mm. start to match the capital um, to that.
0: And, and that's where you come into this idea of, of zebras versus unicorns. You're in the zebra business, not creating unicorns. Is that right?
2: Exactly, exactly. And unicorns, for anyone listening, um, you might have heard the term around companies. Those are companies valued at a billion dollars or more. These are these companies that are mythical because if you have been lucky enough to have the money to invest in them, um, then suddenly you, you know, make 10 times what you put in, if not more. And, Mm. you know, the idea of unicorn companies is to make a very small group of people very, very wealthy and to disrupt and to um, you know change things very quickly, and we just see the fallout from that everywhere. And the disruption mm. of moving fast and breaking things uh, breaks more than just an industry. It can break the democracy we're seeing with Facebook, and we're seeing with all these other organizations that have, you know, are are frankly like teenagers in their lifespan and have more power. Than world governments that have been around for thousands of you mm-hmm. know, years, mm-hmm. and so um, you know this whole growing slow and taking time. You know, when I think about the human body, would I want a ten-year-old to have the responsibility of uh, you know a, a country? Heck, no! Like that, it, it just doesn't work that way. You need to develop um, over time. Like time is a necessary component of maturity and responsibility and of um, you know understanding your effect on the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Mara, I, I I can't help but noticing also to to the point that Jen brought up before about startups at sex that that the um, the symbolism uh, of of a of a unicorn and maybe the the um, I guess Georgia O'Keeffe-ness that one might conjure in in picturing picturing a, z- a zebra or <laughs> you know <laughs> what the patterns are that are there in a zebra um, it it seems like they're what I you know I'm picking up on that there is a you know a male um paternalistic sort of misogynist uh piece that's that's really embedded in that unicorn concept and and that the zebra one lends itself much more to to the feminine to the maternal is that is that about right do you find that a a, a lot more of the Entrepreneurs and and startup creators like yourselves are women that are that that you're bringing together in these spaces.
1: You raise such a good question. You know, when Jen and I wrote Sex and Startups, I think we had to come up with this cheeky way of talking about it, and it, it was very effective as a rhetorical device. The more that I observe, it's true that many women are attracted to this movement, but people who believe in nature are attracted to this movement. People who Mm -hmm. understand natural cycles are attracted to this movement. And so I think it's a balance of this masculine and feminine, you know, this sort of directional linear energy and the cyclical. And when I think about just um, I'm living right now in a very rural area in rural Washington and the seasons are so pronounced and you feel each one so much. Um, the, the strawberries come and the strawberries go, you know, the raspberries come, the raspberries go, the, um, now the cucumbers are getting too large, you know, and it's this notion. (laughs) I just sort of, I feel like the plea that Jen and I have is we're not saying we now want to do a hard right and, and, and pivot everyone towards the feminine. Um, we're really looking for, you know, the the way that it's, um, so beautifully described in one of these Baha'i texts, both. Is it two wings of the bird, Jen? Yeah, two wings of a bird. Mm-hmm. And this notion that you need both forces. And so I think the the other mm. force that's not present right now that refuses to be accounted for and accommodated in capitalism is the notion of seasonality and cyclicality. And the moon waxes and wanes. And there's a time of planting and there's a time of harvest. And to every you know oh, no. thing there is a season. And if you were to go to a venture capitalist or someone to finance your company, Jen and I I think could realistically get up before them and say, this, is, this company has grown this much year over year. But what we find most interesting is this company experiences seasons. And so there will be a time of harvest and we can anticipate that once a year. And there will be also a time of retreat where we have to, as a company, experience some sensation of winter and hibernation in order to then have the energy to spring forth with new ideas. And then we're going to work very hard in the summer, you know, with the watering and the cultivating to know that we can harvest again. And even that expression of the type of capital we need, the type of company we're building, the recognition of nature unfolding, the recognition of human nature we talk so much about like this environmentalism and this awareness of nature, and yet we don't have any mechanism for speaking about that or financing it or encouraging it within these containers of companies. And so, yeah, to answer your question, it is the consideration of the feminine, but it's also the recognition that the masculine is contained within that as well.
0: I really appreciate what it is that that you all are doing because I, I I'm I'm so um, encouraged by by the way that you you all are are leading and accompanying and helping other entrepreneurs and and um, uh, innovators and and folks that have just been going along in their job for a while you know as, as even simply as employees as part of newsrooms or otherwise to think differently about their work and and hopefully you know we can take this time to to make some radical fundamental changes to what it is that we're doing that are, to your point, Mara, you know, more in tune with natural cycles um, of 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 growth and reflection and what what have you.
2: Yeah, and, and one thing I'd I'd just like to add to that point, um, in addition to knowing that about the natural cycles and really allowing for those to take place in our own individual lives, our company lives and the economy, is also just the recognition of interdependency. Right. Um, you know, the, the fact that we now see if one piece of the puzzle is not working, nothing works. So just like in, a, in an ecosystem, if one animal goes extinct or um, there's a, a major change to uh, you know, the flora in an ecosystem, the whole thing can shift. And I think now about how with kids not being able to go to in-person school in so many parts mm. of the world in the US, That completely changes everyone's workday and their experience of life and their ability to be, quote unquote, like productive and, you know, contribute to the economy or capitalism. And it's it's just, um, you know, recognition in terms of, of, again, the metaphor of zebras versus unicorns. Zebras competitive advantage is that they cooperate the Mm. way that they, you know, are able to um, to live in the world is by being together and outsmarting Mm. prey by you know, having a dazzle, which is what a group of you know, zebras is called. And that's something that we also see needed in, in the world of companies and commerce, is how do you not think about destroying the competition? Um, how do you think instead about what is each person or group doing well and how can you leverage that to create even bigger ecosystem level wins and not just mm. try and you know, um, stamp out all the other seeds and create a monoculture, which we know is very unstable and very dangerous. So yeah. that, those are a lot of metaphors of nature in one thing, but hopefully <laughs> get it.
0: <laughs> I like the idea. And I didn't know it's so a, 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 a herd of zebras is called a dazzle. Is that yes. What
2: yeah. And it's wow. also called a harem or a zeal. And you can imagine why we didn't choose uh, the harem. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, dazzle is just so much more fun. So yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's well, a I like, dazzle of like, zebras.
0: I like the dazzle because I'm sure that, um, Young Mara, when she was at the mall at Claire's, probably <laughs> saw a lot of dazzles on, you know, whatever those Technicolor uh, folders were with, uh, with the rainbow unicorns or ra- oh, rainbow, Lisa Frank. rainbow zebras. The Lisa yeah. Frank. <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah. all coming back around again. You know, Those, all those Technicolor zebras were, were implanted deep in your memory, Mara. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah um, my
1: aesthetic is way way less incense and way more um, <laughs> non plastic earrings
0: <laughs> Oh boy so I'm curious for you all looking you know in this uncertain moment that we have um you know what is what are what are the things that are keeping you dancing you know since i know jens really big <laughs> into dance parties are a big part of your 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 way of operating and everything like what are the, what are the songs that are that are keeping you dancing and, and creating hope in your life
2: wow that is a great question i feel like i've reached that point in my life that that not all adults do but i think many of us do where we kind of get stuck at some era and then we just keep revisiting it and we're not listening to what the yeah, cool yeah, but kids that's are good listening too. to <laughs> that's good right
0: like it doesn't have to be the new thing it's just like this is the best jam and i keep coming back to it you know
2: yeah i mean i i personally always i can't sit still if i listen to tune yards um, <laughs> yep, work <they're> <laughs> i just think her like rhythms and and polyphonic nature are really incredible also I love um, Animal Collective, which does really interesting stuff with, um, uh, you know, with voice and layering and kind of like creating these like rhythmic and, uh, I don't know, psychedelic (laughs) kind Mm. of experiences. Um, I I like stuff that kind of that that makes me think or makes my body move in a way that's not just like tapping a foot or the same exact rhythm, but that has some some change ups in it. So that's Mm -hmm. that's what I'm drawn to. Cool. What about you, Mata?
0: Yeah. What about you? (laughs)
1: Um, Well, you know, for the last few years, it's been this artist named Simrit, who is a, uh, she's of the Kundalini tradition. And I happened to see her in concert a few years ago, and it felt like my head exploded. And I I just didn't (laughs) know that like music could be like that. And, um, it's going back to a lot of the traditions that I was raised with around sacred music. There's Mm. this unreal film that I recommend to people called, um, the music of the mystics, which is on, it's called Sama school of music. And then if you go there, you can buy access to it. It's like an eight part documentary about, Mm. um, sacred Kuali music in uh, Punjab and in India and uh, sacred music Right now, to me, um, you know, masters like Abida Parveen and others and Simrit is very much in this tradition. People who are my my, mother, you know, I grew up with this mom who was saturated, saturated in world music. And I feel like this is all that she's ever wanted to communicate to me was um, you can create your own reality through sound. Mm. and through the sound that's coming out of your body as an instrument you are an instrument and the frequency that you're sending out there is creating a world and the frequency that you're inviting into your house is a world and the frequency with which you're communicating with people is you know these words are creating realities the the earnestness and the sincerity behind um what comes out of our bodies and our mouths is creating universes. I was even talking to a friend of mine who's been the other day, he was just making different vowel sounds at instruments at, um, at sorry, at insects and noticing this is Jonathan Harris. He was like, yeah, so this ant was walking by and I was like, and you know, the ant was totally freaked out. But then when I went, Ooh, the ant reacted differently, and getting down to that really primal space of sound to me has been a total delight to weather the storm of the last four years.
0: Hmm. You've got some interesting friends. That's yeah. Uh, <laughs> spending an afternoon making sounds at ants is. Uh, <laughs> it's it's free. You can do it Not anywhere. Else, yeah. I, yeah. You get a lot of free time on your hands. Quarantine activity. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And some care. And this
1: notion of just, you know, reminding yourself that you have sovereignty Mm -hmm. right now. I I think so many of us are feeling completely disempowered. And everywhere you turn, it it feels like we're getting boxed in and boxed in and boxed in. And remembering your body is this instrument, your body that can move, that can conjure sentiment in this moment that can bring peace. I that's where I, I'm just returning over and over again. My mother will record um, little clips on the cello or bells and just send it to me and uh, being able to introduce that to my nieces and yeah whatever to whatever degree you can remember that you're an instrument of the divine, you're an instrument in relationship. you're an instrument that's constantly there you know through breath and through this attunement i'm just finding that that's the place the only place that i can reliably turn to for mm. some sense of peace mm.
0: i love that that's great i'm gonna i'm gonna be thinking about that for the whole rest of the day
2: same
1: and i think you know it's um i think at a certain point we're realizing that words aren't doing the job anymore yeah and they're actually carrying so much pain and hurt and misunderstanding So we, it's so natural to turn away from that and turn towards something rhythmic, anything to encourage that impulse to get out of the mind, because I think Mm -hmm. that's where we are. We've now kind of crossed out of quote unquote, facts or truth or, um, logic or intellectualism, which might be Mm. a really beautiful place to sit for a while.
2: Yeah. yeah. And just be surrounded by experience. And, and what does that feel like? I mean, Modern and mm-hmm. I half joke, but I, I am curious to see how it would play out is if the next time we have to pitch investors, instead of sending them a deck and ex- walking them through it, we just, you know, we're able to be there in person with them and curated some kind of experiential situation. And we're like, that's our company. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's right. Um,
0: <laughs> it's a half an hour of just a single gong resonating and yeah. then you just say, thank you very much for your time. And then you exactly. walk out. <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, we're, we're kind of at that point.
1: <laughs> and like a, hey, yeah, a beautiful cup of tea and, and how things smell. And mm-hmm. it's so it's so strange, I think, for Jen and I, if you look at our if you just took us by like our bios or mm. what we've accomplished or what we've done, it feels very it's a strange sensation, especially as a woman, to have checked all of these boxes, Mm. not because we wanted to check them, but just by virtue of what we've managed to accomplish with these extraordinary teams of people that we work with. And at the end of the day, all we're waiting for is for someone to invite us to actually be who we are, Mm -hmm. Mm. which is... It would look so different than it wouldn't it wouldn't be like and now I'm following up with a deck and a PDF and a one sheet and a reference and a keynote presentation and followed by, you know, like a one on one Zoom call. I mean, if if we were ever given the freedom and the opportunity to to birth ideas into the world in accordance with like to thine own self be true. Jen and I have had these experiences before where we're just vibing off of each other and <laughs> it feels like a, <laughs> it feels so different. You know, um, mm. it's it's like it's just such a higher plane, such a higher order of magnitude of being and relating. And then in order to be in this world that it demands of us, we, you know, it just requires this gymnastics back into this contorted place. And I think the mm. both of us as we especially from you know as we get older it's just this constant prayer of like where 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 will that door open that will allow us to actually bring the 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 full fire (laughs) of what we really have to offer here without contorting into your logic model of like the three-year financial forecast which we can do you know Um, but it just doesn't capture the richness at all of, I think, the world that we both dream together that could be possible.
0: Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to thank again my wonderful guests, Jennifer Brandel and Mara Zepeda. I felt like my brain has expanded so many ideas to reflect on about myself and the purpose of journalism of about what our experience in this life could look like about how we listen to each other and to the world around us makes me want to just go out into the park and make sounds at some ants Mm. dear listener if you want to learn about Harkin and enjoy all that they have to offer. You can visit weareharken.com. I'm not ashamed to say that you'll find some video and photos by yours truly adorning their website that I'm very proud to have helped contribute. You can also follow Jen and Mara on Twitter at each of their names, Jennifer Brandell and Mara zepeda As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovemeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, and our musical master, Jeff Philosopher. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalog of Interfaith-ish episodes wherever you find and enjoy podcasts. You can follow us on social media at Interfaith-ish. Leave us a voicemail on our special listener line, 202-599-2953. And keep writing us with the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's interfaithish at gmail.com. Interfaith-ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at Tacoma Radio.org. Miles, what? I think I can take him. What are you talking about? <laughs>